Here are some things to know about Suzanne McGovern. She's an immigrant. She's a mother. She's a cisgender female. Her pronouns are she and her. Her husband is Nigerian and black. Her three kids are biracial. And she is the chief diversity officer at the tech company Splunk. For Splunk, these aren't just seven aspects of Suzanne's identity. They're components of Suzanne's million data points. One of the many ways Splunk has put a quantitative spin on their efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion. When people at Splunk, or Splunkers as they're known, introduce themselves, Suzanne says they often begin with such a list. The goal isn't just to give someone your autobiography, but to reveal yourself as more than just your name, title, and ID number. It's to share more about your journey, what excites you, what inspires you. I'm Chris Weller, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. For this episode and the ones that follow, we'll be drawing from a weekly webinar series that NLI has been hosting every Friday. Today's episode features a discussion between Khalil Smith, Vice President of Research and Practices at NLI, Dr. David Rock, NLI's co-founder and CEO, and Suzanne McGovern, Chief Diversity Officer at Splunk. Their conversation explores the many ways Splunk has designed and deployed a successful data-driven DEI strategy. It also delves into Splunk's response to the ongoing human rights movement and calls for racial justice. While not every company may be as far along in their journey as Splunk, the lessons the company has learned along the way can help any organization start making a change right now. Enjoy. Suzanne, it's a pleasure to be on with you and to have this conversation. And and thank you for spending some time with us. And thanks to all of our listeners for getting in. Um, I'll dive in because I've got a bunch of questions. But uh, first and foremost, I just, you know, kind of want to recognize times are reasonably pretty tough right now. Um, So first, how are you and your family doing? And how's your extended family at Splunk doing? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Khalil. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm very, very grateful. We're, myself and my family are doing fine right now. Our extended Splunk family are, are coming together at these difficult times. So, you know, when you think about that, we had COVID, which really disproportionately impacted many of our minority groups at Splunk. And then, you know, the recent um, death and murder of George Floyd, uh, the social unrest that followed, it's really traumatizing, uh, to be frank, to many of our black splunkers, our people of color, and really we're, we're trying to come together um, and uh, just listen more and, and with empathy and, you know, give each other a little bit more understanding um, at this moment. Oh, I love that. Thank, thank you for sharing. And I'm glad to hear that you're doing as well as can be expected right now. And um, thank you for your leadership. I, I know a number of folks that are on the line are in some type of diversity and inclusion work. And obviously with yourself as a chief diversity officer, I'm sure a lot of eyes turn to you around what should we do and what's our response and where are we going? And so um, I hope you're also taking some time to, to take care of yourself. Yeah. Um, I'll pivot a little bit. It's always a bit of a challenge to pivot from that conversation, but I I am curious to understand um, how have the recent protests and and I think you could arguably call it societal upheaval affected your DNI strategy? What are you either doubling down on or or doing differently? So we are continuing with our three pillar approach to D, E and I, and I'll come on to talk about that. Um, around workforce, workplace, marketplace, around continuing to improve our representation 
around continuing to develop our wonderful uh, million data points culture of inclusion, as Blanca can talk about that too, and really working with our customers and partners to improve our communities in the world. That said, there's been some really immediate things that we've been doing uh, right now. First of all, we started listening sessions with all of our employee resource groups. So really trying to listen to better understand, not necessarily to reply in this moment uh, with compassion and empathy, uh, to understand the lived experience of, of all of our Splunkers um, and really, you know, when have they felt included at Splunk? When have they felt less included at Splunk? You know, what can we do to sort of change our house from the outside in to help accelerate change in this moment? Um, we've also donated to the Urban League in conjunction, that's at the advice of our, our Beams group. I'm re representing here, that's our Black employees and mentors. We chose the Urban League because they are uh, do work in local chapters where we have offices like the Bay Area, like DC. Um, we've also stood up a learning path, actually a LinkedIn learning path, on racial equity and social justice. So, for example, as a white woman, it is my job to get educated in this moment. It is not the job of uh, Splunkers in minoritized groups to take on that extra burden. So we've stood up this learning path um, that's got resources, it's got videos, it's got education. We started precise language um, education, again, with our e-staff and pushing that down. We were delighted we had, I don't know if you know, Deray McKesson. Uh, so he's a Black Lives Matter leader and civil rights leader. He came to talk to us about using data um, to uh, help to mitigate uh, police brutality. Um, we've also, our chief uh, products officer, Sender Sela Kumar, has come out and said, you know, uh, racial terminology has no place in our products, so we're cleaning up our source code and language around that. Wow. Um, we already had allyship circles at Splunk before this moment. The beautiful thing right now is they tripled in size. You know, there's a lot of allies want to practice allyship as a verb, right? And actually get involved and do something, which is a beautiful thing. We had Juneteenth as a holiday uh, last week so that Great. we gave all Splunkers time to sort of reflect in this moment, again, to get educated, right? To, to develop a better understanding. And our e-staff, uh, published a commitment last Friday on Juneteenth to um, racial equity and social justice. And, and so we've actually expanded our charter in DNI to be diversity, equity, inclusion. So not equality, equity, which is, mm -hmm. is quite important. Um, we've opened uh, two new recs as well in MATI, which is great um, as we've expanded that charter. Um, our BEAMS group are doing enormously great work right now. They had a table talk uh, panel discussion this week on the Black experience. They had over 800 Splunkers attend. Um, and really, there's a lot of energy right now because we want to continue our journey, but we want to use this terrible moment to accelerate our rate and pace of change and the social change. Yeah. Wow. I, I, after all that, I want to ask, is there anything you're not doing? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Apart from sleeping, maybe. Yeah, um, a lot of that going on right now. Yeah. yeah. Suzanne, you know, one of the things that I recognize, I was so eager to get into the conversation. I didn't even ask you to talk a little bit about what Splunk does. So when you talk about kind of these two new recs, I would imagine you're going to get quite a few of the people that are on the line saying, huh, interesting. Yeah. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about kind of who Splunk is and what you do and, and kind of how you fit into the marketplace? Sure. So we are the data to everything platform. We believe in bringing data to every decision, every action, every question. 
uh, to really shine a light on where we're doing well, where we're not so doing well. So for example, in DE&I, uh, we use data uh, to share where we're doing well on representation, on hiring, on retention, again, where we're not doing so well. We also firmly believe in transparency around data. So it's one of our core values, openness, and it's incumbent on folks in our industry, I believe, uh, to share their DNI data, to be really honest. If you don't measure it, it doesn't get done. Just to share and be honest about uh, what our representation looks like uh, and where we're doing well, where we've got more work to do. And we're continually um, kind of trying to develop and use data. We have something called the DISCO at Splunk because we love a pun, which is the, the DNI at Splunk Council. And what I do there is I share data every quarter with our functional leaders, with our geo leaders, and really try and activate all the organization around DE&I and hold everyone accountable. So again, we share data every quarter, where we're doing well, where we're doing not so well. We have goals um, around diversity and inclusion, uh, and we check in on those leaders every quarter. Um, we also uh, really have this beautiful million data points culture of inclusion um, at Splunk. And that's a, a video campaign. You can go see it on our website. It's our most downloaded piece of content where our Splunkers are actually turn up with tremendous courage and share whether they are an animal lover, a chef, um, an opera singer, whether they're straight, whether they're gay, whether they're trans, all of the different identities that make them themselves. And so, for example, Khalil, if I was introducing myself to you, I would say from a million data points perspective, hey, Khalil, I'm Suzanne. Um, I am an immigrant. I'm a mother. I am cisgender female. My pronouns are she and her. My husband is African. He's Nigerian. He's black. My three kids are biracial. Our au pair is from Colombia. My sister's gay. I helped her come out. Uh, I have a new sister that we celebrated their wedding last year in London uh, called Lydia. So just trying to break down that name rank serial number and give it as an organizational habit, particularly in hypergrowth, it's super important to us. Um, and we have nine ERGs at Splunk. So more than half of Splunkers are members, followers or allies of our employee resource groups, which actually means that there's majority uh, group folks in there. So there's a lot of white straight males in our Women Plus uh, group. And that's when you get longer term change. We also have our um, Splunk for Good arm, our corporate social responsibility arm. We've increased volunteer time in this moment to 40 hours uh, to really let our Splunkers go uh, do work in their community, uh, go volunteer. Um, and we're committed to donating $100 million dollars um, in Splunk licenses and education to not-for-profits. Wow. Firstly, just for context, because um, I know it took me a while to understand Splunk. I mean, you're uh, in, in many ways a technology firm. I think about 5,000 people. Uh, 6,000 now. 6,000 employees. David. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I mean, a $100 million commitment from 6,000 employees is, is, is a real commitment. That's a serious commitment. And then your, you know, San Francisco headquarters in the in the in the city of San Francisco, but quite global as well. So you know, interesting. You're in the heart of you know the technology world, um, and sounds like you know really um, leading the way in many ways. And I just I love the um, example of that habit. Uh, that's a habit every single employee could repeat many 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 times. It's gonna it's gonna really start to change the um, you know the the fabric of how people see each other. It's a really great uh, great habit. 
Yeah. Well, it really they, helps with it bringing your whole self to work, right? And, and not trying to cover or wasting energy, not being yourself, right? We need to harness the power of every splunker to be successful. So, yeah. David, it feels like there's a natural connection. And, and Suzanne, as you were talking, there were all of these things that were coming out. You were talking about the listening circles that you, that you all have been doing, kind of the groups coming together. You're talking about kind of ways that you've been, what I would argue is kind of acting boldly, right? Increasing your contribution, increasing kind of the, the way that you all show up. Um, and I hear you talk about splunkers and, and talk about it in such kind of familial terms. Um, David, I wonder if maybe you'd feel comfortable going... Um, around some language that we've been talking about quite a bit um, and kind of leadership in this moment that I think could be really helpful in framing what I'm hearing that Suzanne and team are just doing very naturally um, that I think, you know, others maybe not be doing, might not be doing as naturally. They could use a bit more of a framework around it. So, yeah, this is a piece Khalil and I wrote. Actually, I think it was three weeks ago now, uh, which is incredible. It feels like a minute ago um, where we got together Kalona and I got together also with our researchers and others and said, look, all these companies are like really anxious about just what to do. You know, CEOs are like caught in this bind of, do I say nothing? Like, actually, that's not a good idea. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not, not going to work at all. That There's a whole energy around that being, you know, complicit in this, in this moment. Um, but then what do I say? And uh, actually we said, maybe it's not saying, maybe it's uh, the critical things to move through this level of, really human rights movement and, uh, and be a positive contribution to it is listen deeply. Um, where you're really connecting on a very, very deep human level, having more empathy and more listening than you've ever, ever had. Um, then bringing people together um, around common goals um, as opposed to the sort of dividing that's happening, but the bringing people together is such an important act. And then that's really a, a kind of one, two to then do something bold as um, you know, Splunk are doing here. Uh, so it is all in the act boldly, but first you need to listen deeply and see where you need to act and then bring people together and then act boldly. So Khalil, anything you want to add there? No, I, I think you articulated it beautifully. And I would just love to maybe Suzanne toss it back to you, because again, it seems like you all have been doing this very naturally and you've all like everything that you've described, um, at least from my point of view, kind of fits into some of these spaces. But I'm just curious as you hear that frame or as you think about the way that you all have been approaching it, is there any anything that comes out to you as you think about kind of listen deeply, unite widely, act boldly? Yeah, and I, I do want to say, Khalil, that we're on a journey here, right? And um, thankfully, we've not a stand and start, but we want to continue to evolve that DEI journey and really to extend our charter to equity. Um, but we have not solved this. I want to be absolutely crystal clear, right? Um, this is a long-term journey and we want to use this moment to accelerate the pace of change and get more systemic change. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the listening sessions for us have been so illuminating. So what we do is we have three e-staff members, executive staff members. So we, we don't mess up the power dynamic, right? We don't need too many of them. Right. Uh, but with our ERG folks and really just understanding their lived experiences, the challenge they have themselves, um, inside Splunk and outside, uh, but really when have when they been included, when are they not? And it's very unique. So we have nine employee resource groups at Splunk. So we have our beams, our black employees and mentors. We have a Piliconex group. Um, we have uh, SOMOS, our Latinx group. We have a Natives group as well. Um, so very different challenges right now for mm -hmm. our Black group and our people of colour. But then we also have our Disabled Equals True group and our Neurodiversity group who were 
you know, again, like our people of color, hit very hard and disproportionately right. with COVID. But now, again, in this moment, too, you know, the trauma that they're kind of dealing with. Um, we also have a veterans group, uh, which are, are, you know, acutely reminded at this moment of some really traumatic things that many of them have gone through, and particularly around things like PTSD and stuff. Uh, we have our pride group, you know, the rolling back of LGBTQ plus uh, rights at this moment, too, is really alarming. So, and then also our women plus uh, group. So hearing from them and hearing their distinct challenges right now and, and just doing that real listening um, we're not acting right now, but we will act in a month once we synthesized all the right. feedback. And we are, as David said, we're trying to, we are speaking out. Uh, I mean, we're giving Juneteenth as a holiday. We're doing some bolder things that we've never done in the past uh, and really trying to use this moment to drive systemic change. Love that. Thank you. So I, I think to your point around, you know, this isn't new, it isn't completely solved. You all have been doing this work for some time. I'm, I'm, I would love to hear and for our uh, obviously attendees to hear how Splunk has taken a systemic approach to diversity, equity and inclusion and how that approach has potentially prepared you for this moment. Because um, you spoke a little bit about some of the things that have been shifting, but I'm curious about some of the things that you would say, this is what we were doing before that has actually kind of lifted us up and, and protected us in some ways from what's going on right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure that anyone would be fully prepared for this moment. I do think, however, we have a good foundation. And again, we start in-house, uh, right? I'll just be totally candid. I'm not a lover of like grand external corporate statements that's going to try and fix 400 years of systemic racism, you know, internally in a couple of months. So we start internally first. Uh, that's where we are focused. Um, as, you, as I mentioned, we are the data to everything company. So we use data and evidence uh, and you know, hard facts to drive um, what we're doing. So we know where we are. So for example, we published our diversity annual report last month for 2019, and it showed us where we're doing well. It also showed us where we have much more work to do. So for example, we're doing really well year on year hiring women. Uh, we're doing really well on female representation in leadership in management. Uh, we've improved our hiring of black and African-American folks. Uh, we've got more black and African-American folks in leadership in management positions than ever before. Um, that said, we're not doing so well. We have a new intersectional cut of data. We're not doing so well on retaining black and Latinx women. Uh, so really shining a, a light on this is what's working, this is where we're doing well, but this is what we need to do more of. So I think having that foundation uh, has really helped us because we know where we are mm -hmm. to focus on this moment and, and really take in more inputs and, and understand where we are and how to respond and and to make it a movement right not a moment mm. just on that on that, there's an interesting couple of questions coming in around measurement you know given you're a data company and all that how, how if if at all are you measuring people's sense of belonging like it, it, is there is there a way that you do that and what's your thoughts and how are your thoughts about that evolving um We've, in our commitment to racial equity and social justice, so what we've done in the past is more of a, a survey, and I'm happy to say that DNI came up as the, the biggest engagement factor for Splunker, so 87% above kind of industry standards. So again, that's something very unique to Splunk. It's kind of the nicest culture, um, but we are going to go further um, in this moment now with more surveys on equity and, and belonging, and we have a vendor right now. We're also working with another vendor 
looking at our mission, vision, and values, uh, and they also provide some other additional survey tools. So we're evaluating which one to go with at this moment. Let's take a, just a little bit of a step back as well, because some people may not be as familiar with priorities, habits, and systems. But again, Suzanne, it sounds like you all have just kind of naturally fit into quite a bit of that and are doing that work. Um, but your point around, you know, that you're not as big a fan of the, you know, the, the kind of grandiose statements that don't actually change anything internally. Um, mm -hmm. That's what a lot of our research has found is that the priority setting, that initial stage of helping people to orient, to understand that something is important, to pay attention to something is critically important and yet it's not enough, right? And so those statements can be wonderful and we've seen them on the intranets or the CEO stands up and says something. I mean, they have the best of intentions, but nothing actually changes. And so the focus has to be on the habits as well. So you were talking before around, you've created a habit for the way that people introduce themselves. You've created that habit around the million data points, right? And so all of this is around this is what we do when we talk about culture as shared everyday habits and so if people are doing these things on a regular basis they just become the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in um, as opposed to being something completely separate and then you've also created the systems and so the systems lastly are that thing that either reinforce the priorities and the habits or undercut them and so when you say hey everybody we want you to do this and yet we're not going to recognize you for it or reward you for it we're going to make it more challenging to be able to accomplish that thing, um, then you're much less likely to get it to happen. Um, uh, we're, we're not a, a data everywhere company in the exact same way, but we are a research company. Um, and so had done some research, I think it was 2018, um, in terms of connecting with about 41 different companies across seven different countries to understand what works. Um, so they would love for you to speak to that a little bit, because out of that was the birth of Priorities, Habits, and Systems. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we saw that. It was really interesting. We were actually, I, it was a couple of years before that, I was running an event for chief diversity officers. I think we had 80 chief diversity officers in a room in Silicon Valley. And um, I was asking them all about like where their biggest focuses were. And we literally put them up on the board um, of like all the things that they were doing. And I put this whole list up and I looked at it and I went, wow, every single one of those um, is actually about making diversity and inclusion a priority, but none of them are about kind of the next step, the kind of harder thing. I was really curious and, and it, it sort of made us really think about um, kind of really differentiating between, you know, making things a priority and then actually doing the, 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 the harder work. And we saw that, that there's there's really different there's a really different kind of work in building habits, um, which have to be you know one at a time and everyone involved and take a lot of attention and that's different work to putting in place your systems that um, that that reward and encourage and nudge um, and all this stuff and um, it's almost like if you're trying to stop smoking you, you know it's great to get motivated but what you really need is a patch every day and you also need to change your friends um, that's the system <laughs> part. And so you sort of need all three, but everyone anchors too much on the, you know, let's just make this a priority. And we were actually, we were, we were looking at this recently um, and it was sort of thinking about what companies are doing right now in this crisis. And we, you know, we sort of listed all the things that are happening and we said, wow, these are, these are almost all just kind of about making things a priority, not about the, uh, you know, the harder work. Um, so anyway, we, we going back to your question, what we did was uh, looked at a bunch of companies and said, essentially, what rating would we give them for diversity and inclusion? And uh, on average, uh, the success of their initiatives would be rated an F if you're using a university system. 
uh, on an, you know, an A to F scale. And even the companies that were rated like much more successful in DNI were, were getting a D. I mean, there's just the whole space is, it just hasn't been getting the kind of results that, uh, that are necessary. And, um, so we started to think a lot more about the, um, kind of what's the, what's the gap. And for us, it was really separating that work out and saying, look, great to make things a priority, but you know, what's the equivalent of putting the patch on, um, that actually really changes behavior day to day. And I love the example that Susan's Suzanne's got of the, uh, you know, the introduction with all those points. Um, I think we have to, we might have to borrow that NLI, start doing that internally. I really like it. Um, it's a great one. Hi, me again. I want to share a story with you and ask a quick favor. A couple years ago, the Neuroleadership Institute ran a study that asked people to engage in mock negotiations. Each person wore a heart monitor. At the end, people were told to give their partners feedback. Only for half the participants, the roles were flipped, and people were told to ask their partners for feedback. The study found something really interesting. It turned out that giving feedback and getting feedback were equally stressful. But when people asked for feedback, both partners' stress levels got cut in half. Their heart rate steadied, and their anxiety faded. So that's where the favor comes in. Will you give us feedback on our podcast? We created a survey that takes less than two minutes to complete, and in return, you'll receive a free copy of NLI's latest journal paper, The Fact Model, a framework for managing cognitive capacity. To fill out the survey, all you need to do is go to neuroleadership.com slash pod survey. That's neuroleadership.com slash pod survey. So, then, so I'm curious, based on kind of everything that we've been talking about and the habits and kind of the work that you've done, I know that one of the things that you all did was really kind of rally around unconscious bias education and the behavior change, right? The real habits part of this. I'm curious what you're seeing differently now compared to before you embraced it, both the, the kind of unconscious bias and potentially the focus on, on habits and or behavior change. Yeah. First of all, I do want to say that we do love um, Unconscious Bias at Splunk. It plays really well, I think, with a technical audience. Uh, We're a very technical company because of the research element, right? It's really sticky. It's something that everyone can kind of grab onto and understand. Um, And the seats model, um, the way that you break that down, um, has become part of our vernacular at Splunk. So you will hear people saying, hey, have I asked Khalil? Because Khalil's in, you know, Tokyo right now. Have I asked him for his opinion? So it, it really has shown up in our language. And we do recognize that we can't um, eradicate unconscious bias, but we can call it out and we can use it to, to mitigate yeah. and try and, and work with it. So uh, it's been really, really great for us. We rolled out unconscious bias to all of our spunkers. And now we um, basically roll out to all new managers. So really, really important for us. How often, like how many times a week do you find yourself, like yourself in a meeting where someone, either you or someone else calls out one of the biases? So how many times a week or a month if it's not a week? What do you think on average, you know, where someone says, hey, that sounds like a safety bias or that sounds like a, what do you think? Probably, I mean, for me, it's probably two or three times a week. I mean, we yeah. do hear it regularly. Um, as I say, it's just, it's become part of our vernacular and it's become a, a, a kind of safe and independent way to call out bias uh, when we see it and just be really honest about it, you know, so. Yeah, no, we, we collected some data on this and, and actually I was blown away. I was just blown away with the what, what we were starting to see. We just updated this a couple of weeks ago. Our CX team looked out and we, we gathered data from everyone we could possibly kind of put together into a set um, and it ended up being 
uh, a really big set of, uh, of, um, of, of folks. It was nine and a half thousand people uh, that were able to collect in data from individuals and basically ask that question, how many times in the last week did you find yourself you know, noticing a bias and doing something differently? Uh, and what we found was that uh, 78% of people, you know, just in that last week uh, had done something at least one to three times. Um, and that's really exciting. That tells us that the SEEDS framework is, is what we would call disruptive language. It's, it's actually in the conversation and it's, it's, you know, it's changing things. And I got excited about this. Like it kind of brought something back um, that we'd been playing with a few years ago, because, especially with such a focus on, you know, systemic, bias, uh, you know, the systemic issues in society. And you can't, as a company, tackle all of society, but you can tackle systemic bias in your organization. And, mm-hmm. and I started to put some numbers to this and um, think about, like, look, if you're a company of 10,000, just to round it up, you know, you guys, 6,000, if you're a company of 10,000, what does it look like in terms of the number of kind of bias issues that should be being, you know, looked at? Um, and it was really like mind blowing, you know, basically if you're a company of 10,000, you should have about half a million acts of bias mitigation a year across both people issues and business issues. So all the people stuff, right? Hiring, assigning, rewarding, promoting, also all the business decisions. And that's, I, I think what it's going to take to get systemic change in organizations. And then the actual mitigation um, has to actually look um, you know, very, very, very um, effective. It can't just be, oh, well, we've got a bias. What do we, you know, what do we do? And we started to sort of um, get much more tactical about kind of explaining, you know, what that mitigation looks like. There's, you know, there's kind of stuff in the moment uh, where someone might say, oh, that sounds like a safety bias. What should we tell, what would we tell someone else here? Uh, or it's the if-then plan, which is the really big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if we have an investment over a million, then we'll invite a diverse panel to review. And then the really big effects are at the preventative measures uh, level where you're, um, you know, you're, you're taking bias out at the root. So, so, you know, the half a million acts of bias mitigation could be any of these, but the big ones will be, you know, if then plans and preventative measures, but anything you, you can speak to about this, I know we didn't prepare you just, just kind of dropped in my head, but what have been some of your most effective if then plans that you've seen or others have seen, or what have you seen around preventative measures there as well? Um, I do, you're, what was coming up for me was, um, so we, we do the learning itself, but then we kind of doubled down on, you know, sort of off-sites and stuff. And I remember facilitating um, our legal department um, on uh, this and, and if-then statements. And it was really around, you know, them wanting to enable the organization to grow and to scale and to not slow us down, um, but fighting against their own conservatism and their own, uh, risk averse nature, which is what they're paid to do, right? Is to protect us against risk and stuff. And I, I do remember uh, some really, you know, kind of quite profound sort of thing. If I, you know, uh, kind of start with risk, I'm actually going to start with growth and growth mindset and then uh, come back to where's our, our legal exposure uh, residing. So wow. definitely like intense there. And it's great seeing that, you know, when you actually see it more live in an offsite and people committing to the change. So yeah, that, that was one that came up for me there, David. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks. That would be, can we teach all lawyers that? That would be really great. I um, didn't say we quite got there on all of the executions, <laughs> but, but the intent is there and they're trying for sure. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So, um, yeah, this was this, you know, this concept has been really helpful to us and we're starting to now measure, you know, based more on this kind of data and, you know, see what's really happening. But 
the, the, the you know, every team that learns this work we're seeing is starting to put in place these FM plans and preventative measures, you know, really quickly. And uh, that learning, by the way, this, this data is from an extremely light learning solution. This is, there's no workshop involved. So this is a, you know, this is from a very, very scalable, uh, light digital, uh, you know, solution there as well. Khalil, back to you. Where would you like to go? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, Suzanne, I would just love to understand based on a lot of the things that you're doing and all of the kind of wonderful work, what's next for your DNI strategy? I mean, we will stick to our three-pronged strategy, our three-pillar strategy. It's workforce, workplace, marketplace. It is in that order. I mean, I think David touched on this. We got to sort out our own house first. We got to change the world from the inside out. So it's workforce. It's improving our representation. It's workplace. It's continuing to steward that beautiful million data points culture of inclusion. And marketplace. How do we, you know, connect with our broader, broader ecosystem of partners and customers, you know, and communities to really uh, change the world. But we do have to. You know, once the listening sessions are done is really to synthesize all of that feedback, all of that information, and then prioritize our roadmap, right? We're not going to fix some of these really long-term systemic issues, but we can indeed prioritize. We can say, okay, in the short term, this is what we're going to focus on and, and what we're going to do longer term. So really, as I say, trying to use this moment to catalyze our response for systemic change. Yeah, that's great. And, and Suzanne, I'm curious because, you know, as I talk to companies and talk to senior leaders, one of the things that they're expressing is that um, there are some folks that have this real desire to exactly what you described, leverage the moment, capitalize on the moment. Um, and yet for them, that means immediately right now we need to do something. And so what I hear you all saying is like, we want to pause, we want to listen, we want to really understand the, the challenge before we do that. Um, what guidance or recommendations might you give to others around um, why it's valuable to, to kind of make sure that you understand the problem first or how to have that conversation with others that are saying, but no, we, we already know what it is. Let's just go off and do. Yeah. I think we were just really mindful that if we didn't listen to as many diverse voices as possible and understand the lived experience of many of our spunkers that we'd miss something. Hmm. And there's also actually tremendous power in having these conversations, right? To actually have difficult conversations on race, um, and giving people the language. So it's great that we've got unconscious bias education. We're going further now in our education on uh, precise language and giving people the tools and practicing uncomfortable conversations. And as you know, Khalil, these, these don't come easy. We're all uncomfortable with this. I get it wrong regularly. Yeah. <laughs> I generally preface Me too. conversation, exactly, with, um, I'm really sorry, I don't have the words for all of this, but I really want to learn. And I think if we can make, again, that a kind of habit of checking in with folks on naming the issue, on talking about uncomfortable topics and really having robust, because we know people don't leave their experience at our virtual doors. It comes with you to work. So how do we acknowledge and how do we empathize and how do we do it with compassion? Uh, but not doing it for just listening sake, but uh, you know, as I say, that will become part of the plan. But I think beginning those conversations and having those difficult conversations in the right way and developing language and precise language around it, in and of itself, it is a good habit um, to start to bring. 
That's super helpful. And I, I want to come back to this idea of kind of allyship, because you spoke about that at the very beginning of the conversation that we were having. And we've been doing a bit more work around it, as we've heard more organizations say they're interested in it. But before I do that, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is at the organizational level or, um, you know, kind of what it looks like across an entire company. And, and I'm curious, Suzanne, as comfortable as you are being kind of vulnerable, what, if anything, would you personally change about how you've gotten to this point? Um, or what advice would you give to a leader who's maybe earlier in their journey and, you know, isn't as comfortable with some of those uncomfortable conversations or any of the work around DE&I? Yeah, it's a great question. I've got to say in terms of the changes, um, I actually appreciate them all. (laughs) And I have made mistakes. I've made many of them, thankfully. Uh, None to date have been kind of cataclysmic. But, you know, in the spirit of growth mindset, I I really appreciate the failures as well. It's, It's one of the toughest ways, but one of the most best ways to learn right so I'm very thankful for the stuff I've got wrong I think it's really being open to learning all the time uh, and to understand that this is not your sole job right in order to do this well and as I say we are on a journey um, you've got to activate the entire organization Um, you know you've got to listen with empathy and compassion you've got to be open to learning all the time even if it's planned or unplanned and be able to to course correct and go with it it's organic but really to drive accountability in your organization do it with data do it with evidence do it with facts uh, do it in a non-confrontational and independent way and just leveraging the differences to make us stronger right and to really again change the world from the inside out love that Thank you. I think that's amazing advice for all of us. So um, I, I'll, I'll invite David back into the conversation as well, but I, I know you spoke about allyship before and that you all have been doing some work around this. So anything you're comfortable sharing, would love to understand kind of how you all have maybe defined it and, um, and what you're doing with that. Because we're, you know, kind of going through the research and the literature and really continuing to formulate our own point of view on it. And I'd love just selfishly to understand how you all have been approaching it. Yeah, so we have um, an allyship group, the same as we have our ERGs. So it's an affinity space for folks who want to help, folks who are generally in majority groups who want to help. And as I say, we did allyship circles monthly. Uh, They started, they emanated uh, with some folks who wanted to help our black employees and mentors, our BEAMS group. And then it's really grown, as I say, since um, the civil unrest that's happened, um, that's kind of tripled in size. And the channel, we have a Slack channel for allyship, has really exploded right now. So with resources, with articles, with best practice, you know, so it's a great resource for all of our Splunkers. Um, And then those allyship circles, they take on different topics um, each month um, and they they vote them through. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, uh, the one recently was really around being, what can we do in this moment? to be better allies for our black employees and mentors. And, you know, I think all of us are kind of reflecting in this moment and, uh, you know, and personally just the desire and, and some guilt, frankly, into why have I not done more? You know, I knew a lot of this stuff, but why didn't I push this further? But really, again, taking that kind of negative energy in that place of guilt and defense and stuff and into, okay, so what can I do now? How can we use this moment to accelerate? How can we use this moment to go faster? Um, How can I show up um, and really fill the void if I see one of my colleagues who might be a person of color? How can I take that conversation forward? How can I call it out uh, when I see it? As I say, it's really 
it is not the job of minoritized groups right now to be educating people in the majority. And the, I've never seen our allyship practice being so vibrant as in this moment, which is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the one thing that I would add to that um, is this idea that as we've talked about inclusion over the years, one of our mantras has always been, if you're not actively including, you're probably accidentally excluding. Um, and Suzanne, one of the things I loved hearing from you is that, you know, as a part of your ERGs, there are people that don't necessarily align with that particular demographic that are a part of that ERG, right? They're listening, they're understanding, they're figuring out how they can be supportive. And so, you know, as we've looked through the literature, there are certain myths about it that, oh, you know, this isn't my place to be an ally because I shouldn't be speaking about that if I'm not a part of that group. Um, or, you know, I could potentially look as if I'm trying to be like a savior to that group. And so, you know, silence is safety and I'm just going to take a step back and, you know, they'll take care of themselves. Um, and not a lot of it is through malice, right? A lot of it is through ignorance. And I mean that in a really positive way. I just don't yeah. know any better. And so, Suzanne, that thing that you spoke about, I've called them, you know, with my own groups, clumsy conversations. Mm -hmm. And to your point, they're not easy for any of us. I have struggled with how do I call this moment in time? Is it civil unrest? Is it racial unrest? Is it right. racial trauma? Is it, you know, it, it's all of these things and we find ourselves freezing. And when you feel like the silence is safety and that it's easier to not say anything, we put ourselves in a position where we're not actually moving the conversation forward. And so there always needs to be this balance of how do I, you know, um, afford enough grace that Suzanne, when you and I are having the conversation and you say something a little clumsy, I'm like, but I know where she's coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Or when I say something clumsy, you're like, okay, I, I know where we're going there. And I think that's a part of the larger goal of the organization. Um, and part of what we're thinking about as well is we work with a bunch of incredible researchers that study things like in-group and out-group and political polarization and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. There's just a lot to be said around how we come together and collaborate. And allyship is a critical component of that. So for us to understand it as it relates to the larger body of research as a whole is really important because to your point, David, we can and all should be allies for one another because even if I'm a majority group in one demographic, I may be a minority in another demographic. And so yeah. how do we speak up from a position of authority or privilege or power in any of the places where we might not have the same? Yeah, I, I love that frame, Khalil, uh, clumsy conversations. It's really great. Uh, it, it really labels something important, you know, just because you're feeling clumsy about it, uh, just go in anyway and be, you know, have a growth mindset and be, you know, like thoughtful about people's intent rather than just, you know, so I think, Suzanne, any, any comments on sort of clumsy conversations and, and, and your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, actually, what was coming up for me when Khalil was speaking was um, from one of our listening sessions, we got a great story from one of our Black Splunkers. So she is very early in career, very senior, you know, amazing talent, real kind of go-getter. And when the whole George Floyd uh, thing exploded the other weekend, uh, as a Black female, uh, she decided on the Sunday, she's like, right, I'm going to go into my team. We're going to have, you know, a really candid conversation about this. As a Black leader, I, I need to be talking about this. But what happened on the Monday morning was she was in her leadership team meeting, so, so her uh, upline, and they didn't really have the conversation. And then so what happened is she went into her team and guess what? She was like, okay, I'm not feeling psychological safety in this moment, so I'm not having the conversation. She said, and then I, that night I'm thinking, oh my God, I have a responsibility in this moment. I should have done something. And now there's a void happening, right? And now people are not talking about it. 
and she feels unsafe, her team feel unsafe, and that, and that can quickly get exacerbated. Thankfully, I think it was like on the Tuesday, Wednesday, one of her leaders kind of spoke to her individually and she was like, okay, good, this, this is a safe space. I can talk about this. I need to talk about this uh, in my team. So I think a big act of allyship there is, again, if you're a white person in this moment, if you're a member of a majority group, you know, you've got to start having these conversations. You've got to give that place of safety and you've got to name it. Um, otherwise, back to your point, David, you're, you're part of the problem. Any final thoughts or anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? No, you were pretty thorough, Calico. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I would say, though, you know, as a company that profoundly believes in the power uh, of data, um, we also know that we've got a huge opportunity uh, to learn and to do better in this moment. So, really, we'll continue here in, in Splunk to use data on our DEI journey and so that we can drive, you know, much better outcomes for our company, our communities, and the world. Amazing. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And thank you so much for the contribution and the conversation and for all of the partnership that we've had over the years. It's been absolutely incredible. So thank Appreciate you. And thank it. you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you, David. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer for Your Brain at Work is Noah Gelb. Danielle Kirschenblatt is our editor. Gabriel Berzin, our associate producer, and Cliff David, our production manager. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Catchware. We'll see you next time.